Well, good morning and happy new year to each of you. I want to invite you to turn, if you would, in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1 this morning. Happy New Year. Why do we say that? Everyone says that, right? We say Happy New Year. And I'll tell you what, I think that it is actually very indicative of something. It's indicative of the fact that that we want happiness. We want to experience the goodness of God. That's quite a picture to think about that song uh, about God's goodness running after us. Isn't, Isn't that something to think about God running after us with open arms and, and treasures and riches that he wants to give us. And uh, we sing over and over, your goodness is running after me. Well, what's the problem? Why doesn't it ever catch us? It's because we run away from it. We don't know how to run to and receive so many times the goodness of God. And so we're going to be thinking in these weeks to come as we study uh, the book of Philippians, Christian joy. Christian joy, such a crucial subject. You know, we could really tag this, if you will, under the category of growing in Christ-likeness or Christian maturity. It is something that we have to go after. It's something that we have to cultivate. C.S. Lewis said that joy is the serious business of heaven. And if it is the serious business of heaven, then we must seriously work at cultivating it and allowing God to bring his goodness to bear in our lives and through our lives. I recently read that folks with what's called a high emotional intelligence, it's, it's your emotional IQ, if you will, or we could say it's a well-trained soul or a well-trained habit of being and dealing with emotions. Folks with high emotional intelligence, this book said, have mastered the practice of returning to joy within 90 seconds. So in other words, something happens and triggers or elicits negative emotions. Things like anger, fear, sadness, hopelessness, shame, disgust. One of those they call the six hardwired emotions of the soul. Something happens that triggers that, but people with this high emotional intelligence are able to return to joy, the primary positive emotion, within 90 seconds. And then this book goes on to say some people, it takes hours, some days, some weeks, and some actually never figure out how to return to a state of joyful being after some negativity or even something that is is rightly Uh, responded to with negative emotions, but they don't know how to get out of that cycle. And I don't think we want to be there. We want to experience joy. I truly believe that. But if you're here and you're going, I don't know if I care about joy. Some of you are motivated by other things like money, right? The same book said that people with a high emotional IQ on average make $29,000 a year more in the same job than their peers that have low emotional intelligence. In other words, it pays to know how to handle your emotions and to learn how to return to joy. There are many biblical warnings about the danger of not living a life that is full of joy. In other words, we live lives that are hijacked by negative emotions and we don't know how to return. Here's a great passage and one that I've been meditating on for a couple of weeks now. It's not the one we'll, we'll look at this morning, but it is a great segue to it. It's from Ephesians chapter 4. And as I read these selected verses, I want you to hear clearly the Bible's teaching about the Christian's active role 
in returning to a state of relational joy. Here's what he says in Ephesians chapter 4, begins in verse 22. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And then he skips down to verse 31, or I skip down, and he says this, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as Christ in God forgave you. Did you hear that? You were taught as Christians to put off the old self and to put on the new. And then he gives a laundry list. It's not all-inclusive. But number one that he lists is this joy hijacker called bitterness. Bitterness is a cold state of anger. It's when anger comes in and we let it stew. And it becomes a settled habit and perspective. And I'll tell you, it's called bitterness for a reason, because it's toxic. It's poisonous. It kills joy in us and in all of those that we come in contact with. But instead, he says, put on something different. Put on a different way of being, and it will lead to joy. And so this series that we're in, I'm calling it Rejoy. R-E, little colon, joy. Y'all are like, what does that mean? I have no idea. It just sounded cool. Re, returning to joy, recovering our joy, having our joy restored, recovering Christian joy. That's what we're going to look at in these weeks from the book of Philippians. And the reason is because Philippians is the book of joy. I would contend that it is the primary theme of that book. I want to tell you a little bit about the Philippian church and, the, uh, and about Philippi. Roughly 20 years after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, the New Testament church, as the Holy Spirit was poured out and they were obedient to do what Jesus called them to do, as they lived lives that were full of this indestructible joy, the church was exploding. The New Testament church was growing and it was moving beyond Jerusalem. People were coming in droves to Jesus Christ. The back half of the book of Acts records one of the catalysts of that movement, and that is the missionary work of a guy named the Apostle Paul and others that were in his missionary band at different times. God called Paul and others to forsake the comforts and the pursuits of worldliness and even to forsake their safety to go and to take the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, this life-changing news, to the Gentiles. On his second missionary journey... The Apostle Paul, along with Silas, Timothy, and eventually uh, Dr. Luke joins them. They're intending to go eastward deeper into Asia, but God hijacks their plans. Paul has a vision one night, what we call the Macedonian vision, of a man inviting him, asking him, begging him to come and to Macedonia and give this good news, the Macedonian vision. And so they wake up, and Paul concludes, he says, I believe God's actually calling us to go west. And they turn west into Europe. This is the first time that we know of that a Christian missionary was taking the gospel into Europe, onto European soil. And the first major European city, arguably, that they would come along, the Via Ignatia, the road that eventually 
would take you to a ship that would take you to Rome. The first major city is a Roman colony called Philippi. Philippi was named after Alexander the Great's father, Philip II. And so it had Greek origins, but it had been taken over by the Romans, and it was thoroughly Roman in its architecture, culture, religion, and all of those things. It was a booming and bustling place, a major city. And so they stop along there in Philippi. There was no Jewish synagogue, so Paul could not do as he normally practiced, that is to go and to argue among the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. Instead, he goes down to a river, and he finds a Bethmore Bible study going on. Now, he finds a, a women's prayer meeting there at the river, and he encounters a lady named Lydia, who is a businesswoman. She uh, trades uh, purple garments, okay? She, she, she's got these fine textiles and fabrics, and she encounters Lydia, and he explains the way of Jesus. You see, she's seeking God. God is doing a work in her life, but she doesn't yet know Jesus until Paul the missionary and his team come along, and he tells, them the God, tells her the gospel of Jesus, and she's converted and becomes a Christian. She invites Paul and his cronies to come and take up headquarters and residence and for them to meet to learn more about the way of Jesus. Paul and them move into Lydia's house and that becomes their headquarters while they're doing ministry there in Philippi. Paul's going about doing what he does. He's preaching the gospel. He encounters a young woman, a girl, who is demon-possessed, and because of this demon possession, she actually has the ability to see things and to tell some things, you know, a little bit of a fortune teller type thing going on, and she's following Paul and them around, and she's annoying them. She's actually saying, these guys are here, and they're, they're telling the way of salvation about God, but I don't know if she was screaming, I don't know if she was annoying, but Paul finally gets fed up, and he turns, and he casts out the demon. Well, she loses her ability to tell the future. She's a slave, and her owners have been trafficking her. They've been using her demon-powered abilities to make money. They just lost their sweet gig. And so what they do is they take Paul and all of his buddies to the jail, and they say, these men are causing trouble, and they're jailed. And they tell the jailer there, they say, keep these guys safe. We're going to figure out what to do with them. Now, the jailer takes them, and instead of keeping them safe and sound and giving them a cushy little place to reside, he actually puts them in stocks. It appears, if you read in Acts, I believe it's in chapter 16, he doesn't have to do that. He's at, he is actually told to keep them safe, but he tortures them. He, he goes a little bit step, a little step further. He's mean, he's vindictive, and he tortures them. And you know what Paul and Silas's response to the torture was? Singing praise songs. They sang night and day. They told about Jesus. I'm sure that those jailers begin to feel like Paul was feeling with that little girl. Shut up! We're tired of hearing this. But he always preached the gospel, and they sang, and they praised, and an earthquake comes, opens the doors to the cells. When the jailer figures out what has happened, he is sure that the prisoners would have escaped and he's going to lose his life. He's going to be tortured. And so he decides to kill himself. And there in the darkness, they call out and say, what are you doing? Don't hurt yourself. Don't harm yourself. We are all still here. We didn't run away. And this man's life is saved. And he is, his heart is profoundly impacted. Why? Why would you stay in this pit willingly? And he comes and Paul leads him to Christ. And the Philippian jailer and all of his household were subsequently converted. This is the beginning of the church at Philippi. The ones who received this letter. 
As Paul went about doing his missionary work, he continually faced imprisonment, persecution, stonings, beatings, and death. But he stayed close with the church at Philippi, for they often sent money and support and help for him. They prayed for him, and he prayed for them. They maintained their close relationship. About 10 years later, and this is how we got this letter to the Philippians. Probably about 10 years later, Paul is on his third missionary journey and he's put in prison again. And it's dire. And he needs help. He needs someone to care for him. And they send a man, a member of the church named Epaphroditus with a love offering. And they send him to go and to care for the Apostle Paul as he is in prison. They're supporting the work of the gospel. They're supporting their beloved former preacher, and friend and brother in Christ. At some point, Epaphroditus falls ill. He gets deathly sick. He nearly dies. Probably not COVID. We don't know what it is. But he nearly dies. And God saves him, has mercy on his soul. And he's revived. And Paul intends to send him back to Philippi. But he has a letter for them to receive. At some point, apparently Epaphroditus has told them told the Apostle Paul and his buddies, there's problems in your former beloved church. That church that you planted, it's racked with division and dissension, disagreement, and all sorts of problems. It's possible that the pastors, the elders, and the deacons sent Epaphroditus partly for this purpose, to ask the Apostle Paul, what should we do? Our church is struggling, languishing. There is no joy in this place anymore. Paul sends back with Epaphroditus, whether solicited or not, this letter that guides them back to a place of recovering their Christian joy in that local fellowship. That is how we got this book where we'll now begin, and I'll ask you to turn, if you would, there. Philippians chapter 1, we're going to begin in verse 1. It says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. It's easy to uh, rush over the introductions in these books, but there is some beautiful stuff here that we need to see. And the first thing that I see in verse 1 is Paul, by describing himself, as a bondservant or slave, is asking that entire body of believers to recalibrate their Christian identity, to recalibrate their Christian identity. Who are you? What are you? That's an important question. That's a question actually that our entire culture is struggling and and, and deciding about how that's figured out. The image or the model or the conception that you have of yourself, your personal identity, is actually very important. It might seem unimportant, but your sense of personal identity is the seat of your soul. It's the place from which you operate, actually, most of the time, subconsciously. You don't even know that, but you have a sense of identity in your soul. And you operate out of it, you act out of it, you relate to people out of it, you respond to challenges out of that sense of your personal identity. Your identity is the core of your operating system in your life. Who are you? What is a Christian? If you would call yourself a Christian, how do you see that? Paul says, Paul and Timothy, 
bondservants of Christ Jesus. He says, we're slaves. We are nothing more than servants. You look up to us, he says, as as, uh, spiritual giants or spiritual fathers or whatever. You know what we are? We're bondservants. We're slaves. Now, that doesn't mean that it's unwilling slavery. Actually, the Bible says in the book of Romans, Paul writes about slavery. He says, before you come to Christ, you're enslaved to your sin. But Jesus sets you free and makes you a servant of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It's actually a great place to be, but ultimately, he says, we are just servants. That's what it is to be a Christian. Pride and selfishness and selfish ambition at the core of our identity is toxic. It drives people away, and it steals joy. The way of Jesus is different than the way of self. It's actually the way of service. I love this. I read this. I slept and I dreamt that life was joy. I awoke and saw that life was service. I acted and behold, service was joy. The way of Jesus, the way of service and coming up under people to lift people up is actually a great source of joy. And so I asked Brandon to read that vivid passage from John where Jesus, before the Last Supper, does something stunning. He strips down to, to just the underclothes, and he takes on and puts on basically an apron and girds himself with this towel, and he takes a wash basin, and he goes to his disciples, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, to his flawed and failing and miserable at times disciples who are always jockeying for power and position and say, he goes to them and he kneels down to wash their feet, and Peter recoils, and he says, you're not going to wash my feet. That's what we do when we see this kind of service. We naturally recoil because of pride and selfishness, because of the fact that we want to attain the highest place and Jesus is going to the lowest place and we're thinking, I'm following this. And Peter recoils and Jesus says something stunning. He says, you can't have any part of me if you're not in on this. If you're not good with this, then you go follow someone else. Because my way is this way. And Peter gets it and he says, all right, well, don't just wash my feet. Why don't you go ahead and my head too. Clean up my face. Jesus shows us the way of our identity. And actually in Philippians chapter 2, we'll get a far more powerful picture of this even than this. Servants of Jesus. I think the Philippians, it's it's foreseeable anyway, that they had lost sight of this. You think about the ones that we know, the three people that I introduced you to. You think about Lydia, a wealthy woman. She was a businesswoman respected in her trade. It's very possible a lot of the people in Philippi didn't have anything, and so they looked to her maybe as someone to fund a lot of things. Maybe that puffed her up. Maybe as a business owner, a mover and shaker, she struggled to come under the authority of the pastors and the leaders there in the church. Or maybe just because she had money, she thought that she was better than other people. And I think with her, if that is the case, that this reminder of Paul saying, hey, we're slaves, we're servants, that's our Christian identity. Maybe that would register powerfully with her. You think about this formerly demon-possessed girl who had been trafficked and mistreated and probably experienced God knows what at the hands of cruel men. It's very possible that she had some serious trust issues. 
issues. She didn't want to open up to other people. Maybe when things got tense, she recoiled and went back into her shell. Maybe she was prone or tempted to get out of Dodge. Maybe anytime someone looked at her the slightest bit strange, maybe feelings of uselessness and shame came up in her. Think about the jailer, the Philippian jailer, a guy who liked to torture people for fun. Probably gruff, probably rough, being a former military man, probably very abrupt, probably got loud, maybe a little bit prone to anger and violence, throwing his weight around to suppress those who disagreed or didn't want to do things his way. And here is the Apostle Paul. And we're, we're servants. We're slaves. All of these people apparently needed to be reminded that to follow Jesus is to follow a different way. And he says we're bondservants. Doulos is the Greek word. A powerful picture. And then he says this. Another powerful mark of identity in who he's writing to. He says to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. To all the saints here's a church that is racked with all kinds of problems and he calls them saints. And we think that doesn't fit because we think a saint is someone who is perfect. It's not. It's not someone that is posthumously awarded this, this great award. A saint is a follower of Jesus. It is a holy one. It is one that has been snatched out of the darkness, brought into the light, taken away from vile purposes and set aside for beautiful and holy and good purposes. The purposes of God. God has amazing plans for every one of us in this place. He has set us aside to be his hands and feet and to reflect his goodness and his graciousness with each other and in a lost world. That's what we're set aside for. You're saints. We don't always act like saints, nor did they, but that's what we are. And so here is this powerful double identity as Saints and servants that should go deep into our soul at the core of our identity. We need to be informed by that. We need to hear that. And we need to work to allow that to work its way out in our lives. Now let's read verse 2 as we see recovering gospel focus on grace and peace. He says this, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he wants. Paul says, I'm praying for you, I'm hoping for you, I'm writing for you that you would live powerfully in this, that you would experience the grace and peace of God in your lives. And it's amazing how quickly we lose sight of that. We want to go after works-based righteousness instead of just coming under and receiving the grace of God. You know what grace is? It is totally undeserved goodness. It's unmerited. It's not something that you deserve or earned or can do anything for it's just the goodness of God poured out because he's a good, good father. And peace is the shalom. It is, it is the, the tranquil soul that comes from walking with God and experiencing his grace. And we walk out of that. And we try to do all sorts of attainments to prove our worth. Even we do it as Christians. I do it. We begin striving and we are driven to do something to prove our worth so that maybe God would give us his grace when all along grace is ours. 
for the taking. And peace is ours for the taking if we'll just receive it. Don't you want to have the grace and peace of God in your life? When I say Happy New Year, none of you are like, nope, no thanks, no thanks. I'll take misery. I'll take misery. (laughs) No, no, you want happiness, joy, and grace, and peace. And it's there. We need to recover that as what we're running after, as what is running after us. That should be what our sights are set on, living in the grace and peace and joy and goodness and shalom of God. Now let's move to the biggest chunk here, but I'm actually almost done for those of you that are watching your watch. Verses 3 through 11 Here is the relational nature of Christian joy. The relational nature of Christian joy. And as we read these verses, 3 through 11, don't parse them and divide them and get too academic with them. What I want you to do is I want you to feel what is oozing out of these words between the Apostle Paul and his beloved friends in Philippi. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. In view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now, for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work among you will complete it by the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart. Since both in my imprisonment and in the defense of the confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray, that your love may overflow still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may discover the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and blameless for the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ for the glory and praise of God. Here is the relational nature of Christian joy. Loving relationships. I tell you, joy is relational. Comes first from our relationship with God, the Holy Spirit working through us, experiencing the grace of God by Jesus. And it flows out of us to others. It draws us in connection to others. Joy is relational. Mark Twain said to get the full value of joy, you have to have someone to divide it with. Joy, to get all that is there, has to be relational. We share it with other people. Another has written, the walls that we build to keep sadness out also keep joy out. There is for many of us a tendency when things get difficult when, when looks are shared, when, when, when words get a little heated, when we disagree, some folks withdraw. And before we even realize we're doing it, what we decide is we're just going to shut that person out. Or we're going to shut people out in general and we just withdraw into our little tortoise shell. And what we've done, we've thrown up a barrier to joy when we do that. When we keep other people out, We're kicking joy out. One of the primary joy killers in this life is mismanaged and broken relationships that we refuse to do anything about. Hey, listen, I'm preaching this to myself. These words are for the pastors and the deacons and all the saints at Philippi and for today. 
We push people out. We cut them off. Sadly, we do things that alienate people and we don't know how to fix them. But joy is relational and we have to keep pushing forward. And it's so refreshing to me to come to this letter. That's why the book of Philippians is so beloved. It is so loved by people because the affection and the love, the pathos, I mean, the emotion is just pouring out of it. And some of you are like, man, I don't know about this emotion stuff. I know. But I tell you, this is a beautiful letter depicting a beautiful relationship between Paul and the Christians at Philippi. That's what church is largely about. It's about the gospel of Jesus being proclaimed. It is about a partnership in the gospel, bringing folks to experience the love of Christ, but it's doing it together. It's doing it together. Are you with me? Together. We don't have all of the spiritual gifts, each one of us. We're doing this little study on spiritual gifts. We're going to begin on Wednesday nights. It's not a book study. It's just going to be a Bible study. It's going to be interactive. And the goal is to figure out how God has uniquely gifted us through the Holy Spirit to serve, to build others up. But one of the key things about spiritual gifts is everyone that's a Christian has at least one, and nobody has them all. And so as we're built up, if we're going to be built up into maturity, we need other Christians in our lives. But we push them away. And I, I tell you, I think it's a unique day in which we live. So many of us are living our relationships out on unsocial media. I've been waiting to say that. Unsocial media. Because we can curate that, we can hide, we can unfriend, we can do all kinds of things. To Algorithms are telling us what we need to see. And we're trying to live out our social lives on this platform instead of the way that God intended. I'm not saying that, that you shouldn't have it, but I'm saying you shouldn't have that as your sole Christian community or community. If you're a Christian, you should be in Christian community with other believers and have relationships. It's so easy also just to kind of slip in, slip out, be anonymous in church. That's not the way church is intended to be. Not because God wants your good and he wants the goods, good of this entire congregation. And so you should be in small group. You should be having lunch. You should know people's names. You should share life. You should pray for people. You should know how to pray for people. And the only way those kind of things will happen is by being a friend, opening up your heart and your affections to other people. Hey, you can't be everybody's best friend in this church. You just can't be. There's probably 10 or 12 slots of close friends that you can handle. Some of them should be from among this church. Last night, I don't do much uh, for New Year's Eve, hardly ever. Uh, I'd never almost never do anything on Saturday night because I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to tell y'all, you know. And uh, uh, last night, uh, our family went out to some, some friends for a, a New Year's Eve dinner. This has been somewhat of a tradition for us. And these people uh, that hosted it, I tell you, they are super special people in my life. We were members of a church together for about 10 years and uh, I was just thinking about, and the, and the reason I went ahead and went to this party is because they've gotten uh, old enough and having some health problems. They're actually going to have to move out of state to live with some family. So this was our last New Year's Eve dinner. 
And I remember sitting right over on the left side center, here was this new couple. They were already fairly old when they came to the church. And I went up and I shook their hands and I introduced myself. And uh, uh, the lady, she's a little bit forward. She said, we're looking for a new church. And I said, good, we got a slot available right here. I'll come out and see you tomorrow. And I went out to their house. And uh, I tell you, it was just like an instant connection and love with these people. And uh, they began to tell, I said, why are you here? Why? Nobody moves to South Mountain, Searcy County, Marshall, Arkansas on purpose. Like, like, are you running from the law? What's going on here? And uh, they said, God sent us here. My eyes got big. And they said, we were living in New Mexico. And we've been praying about, they were kind of missionary-oriented missionary people. And they said, we've been praying about where the Lord would have us. And we felt like he said Arkansas. And they were actually looking at another area, and they landed there. And the people they bought their cabin from had been members of our church, and so we had a connection. And I said, what y'all don't know is I prayed you here. Then they looked at me with big eyes. I said, you know, one of the things I've been praying for for our church is that God would raise up workers in the gospel harvest field. I believe God sent you here to be a part of that. And I'll tell you, for about 10 years, uh, they were just such a special couple. And, and uh, not many people get treated like natives in Searcy County if you ain't one. They got treated like natives. They were just so open people. They loved people and they worked and they did stuff. That guy, oh Joe, we would do construction projects and all kinds of projects around the church. And he was in his 70s and he was outworking every one of us. And I was just amazed by this guy and Miss Barbara, how she could corral things. And, and just, I tell you, this letter and the affection between Paul and these people reminded me. And last night reminded me of how special. And I'll tell you what's so special about this couple. It's not all the work that they did in the church, though they did a lot of stuff. What's special it's the relationship, the love that they showed. And Joe could barely speak last night. And he said, I want to thank y'all for making us feel like part of the family. That's what church is about. It's brothers and sisters in Christ. And we lose sight of that. We get really program-oriented. We get task-oriented. We get our things that we do, and we get really busy. And I'll tell you, right, right here, and we push people away. Or we keep them at the surface, and that's not what it's about. Joy is relational. Joy is relational. I'm going to wrap it up like this. There's actually a great book called Rare Leadership that I've been reading. Rare Leadership. It's by Jim Wilder and Marcus Warner. And rare is an acronym. They say that there are four traits of leaders that seem to produce great joy and trust and partnership among all the people that are around these leaders. He says rare traits. And the only reason I'm telling you this is not because they said it, but because I think it perfectly aligns with what the book of Philippians is showing us. Here are those traits. And again, I would say it's a good recap. Maybe it's a way for you to remember some of what we've talked about today. 
The R in rare stands for remain relational. Remain relational. When people offend you, when you get really busy, especially if you're a task-oriented person, don't withdraw, don't disengage, don't give in to pride, don't try to overrule people, don't scream at them, don't do those things. Remain relational. The A is act like yourself. I'm like, people don't want to see me act like myself. What they say about that is, act like who you really are in Christ. Remember that you are a servant of Jesus Christ. You are a saint called for a higher purpose. Act out of that. Beware when other emotions come up and maybe cause you to want to act differently like what you once were when you were a torturous, mean jailer or you were in the throes of shameful oppression or when you were just totally worldly in your pursuits. Don't act like what you were. Act like what you are in Jesus Christ. Remain relational. Act like yourself. Here's a great one. Return to joy. You know how I realized recently that I needed to return to joy? Somebody was taking my picture and showed me pictures of myself. At a moment when I should have been joyful and full of the Spirit, and I looked like I'd just been whipped. I looked like I'd been with the Apostle Paul in that jail. And it was just a powerful moment to say, man, that your eyes and your face a lot of times tell the true condition of your soul. And I began to search, and I said, Lord, I, I've lost sight of joy. I want to return to joy. I'm one of those slow people. I don't return in 90 seconds. Lord, I need to return to joy. And here's the last one in rare. So remain relational, act like yourself, return to joy, endure hardships well. You will face hardships. Joy is not circumstantial. If Paul, and one of the reasons we should listen to his words and why they asked his advice is because this guy knows how to sing praise songs in jail when he's just been beaten within an inch of his life. This guy, amidst all of the trouble that he faced, all of his travels, all of the setbacks, all of the difficulties, people that abandoned him and all of that, he had this sturdy, crazy, strong joy that just seemed irrepressible. Joy is not dependent on circumstances. And so what we have to learn is to endure hardships well, to fight for joy, even when we have a terrible diagnosis, even when someone close to us has betrayed us, even when the path that I thought I was going down, it was going to lead to this, gets cut off. You can endure that hardship with joy because your happiness doesn't come from those things. Would you join me on this journey back to joy? And when I say join me, I don't mean just occupy a seat. But I want to invite you to come with me to the book of Philippians and see what God's Holy Spirit says about how we can have indestructible, unimaginable,
Christian joy. Would you bow with me today? Where are you at? Maybe you are right in the sweet spot of joyfulness. If you are, man, I'm so glad for you. Stay there. If you're not, hey, this study is for you. But you have to open yourself up to it. It's very possible that one of the very first words I said, maybe, is where you find yourself in a place of bitterness. Is bitterness sapping and sucking out the joy of your soul? Anger, disappointment, shame, Hopelessness, fear, sadness. Has that become a settled state of your soul that you know is not where you want to be? Would you do this? Would you just write where you sit? Picture that thing, that feeling, that emotion that's gripping you as being in your hands. Clench your fists up and grab hold of it. Say, Lord, there's this hatred. There is this bitterness. There is just persisting anger. Whatever it is, see it there in your hands. Put it in your hands. And let's go into a time of prayer and just open your hands. Open your hands, your palms facing upward and just say, Lord, I'm asking you to take this. And replace it with handfuls of joy deep in the recesses of my soul. Ask him for peace where there has been no peace. Ask him to show you, to reveal to you the things that are stuck and keeping you stuck in your heart and in your mind. And as he reveals them, ask him to take them from you. And come into his grace and peace. It's a great exchange. So you do that now. Commit your ways to the Lord in these weeks. Even this day. Ask him for joy, peace, and gladness. Here I'm going to ask you to do something really bold. And it has to do with relationships. That are sucking the joy out of your life. Ask him to show you. And help you. To walk as his servant and as his saint. In repairing and restoring the relationship if possible. Just ask for his help. I'm not asking for any action other than prayer. Lord, help us today. We ask that you would remove the bitterness, the coldness, the disease of the soul that each one of us is prone to or maybe experiencing this day. And Lord, we just ask this, that you would change us by the truths of your word, the power of your word. As we seek to submit to you and put these things into practice, help us, we pray. Do what only you can do as we agree with you. 
and submit our lives and our words and our hearts and our minds and our souls and our practices and our attitudes to you. God, do a powerful work deep within us. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.